Hi, I'm Carmen LaBerge. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Mornings with Carmen LaBerge. Encouraging you to live as an ambassador of God's kingdom in the world. This is Mornings with Carmen LaBerge on Faith Radio. Again, uh, Carmen LaBerge here in Hour 2 of Mornings with Carmen on the Faith Radio Network. This is the 17th of May, 2022. I want to lead off this morning um, with crystal clear clarity on a particular subject. From a Christian worldview, from a redemptive gospel worldview, racism is wrong. Racism has no place in uh, the Christian mind, mindset, worldview, heart, Um, To judge a person based on the color of their skin is not Christian. It's not biblical. It's certainly not redemptive or gospel in terms of worldview. And I'm not talking about being colorblind. I'm talking about having the eyes of the Father and the mind of Christ on the issue of racism in our nation today. And yes, we have to talk about it. On Sunday, a day, you know, seemingly like every other day, became a day like no other day. Last Sunday at the Topps Grocery Store in a neighborhood of Buffalo, New York, people were going about their day, a day like every other day, picking up a few things at the store on the way home after uh, visiting a husband uh, who is in a nursing home or, you know, popping in to pick up a cake for your grandson's birthday party. And then that day that was like every other day became a day like no other day. Um, Everything changed because one person, one person was on a mission to kill as many people as possible whose skin color was different than his own. We're going to talk about something called the Great Replacement Theory, and we're going to talk about it because it figures uh, dominantly in the worldview of the shooter. And you're going to hear a lot about, you've heard a lot about uh, replacement theory in the last 24, 48 hours. You're going to hear more about it. And so I want you to be informed. I want you to know what it is. And I want you to know the, uh, the layers of lies related to it. But I also want you to you know, recognize the, the kernel of truth that's in there as well, because that's always the challenge, right? The challenge is the reason people begin to believe something is because there's some, some, part of it that's based in observed reality. So here's the observed reality. Here's the truth. The demographics of America have changed and continue to change. Like we are, in the words of Robert P. Jones, we are approaching or maybe have arrived at the end of quote unquote white Christian America. Like the demographic reality of the United States of America has changed and it continues to change. Um, but it is not because there is some international cabal of any kind that is trying to make that happen. But the fears related to this quote-unquote replacement theory are pretty mainstream. 
Um, again, PRRI, the uh, uh, Public Religion Research Institute, um, did a poll in 2021, asked this question or made this statement. This is and then the percentage of people who agree. Immigrants are invading our country and replacing our cultural and ethnic background. Immigrants are invading our country and replacing our cultural and ethnic background. Twenty nine percent of those uh, surveyed agree. Sixty five percent of QAnon believers agree. Fifty percent of white evangelicals agree. Forty three percent of um, of white uh uh, non like non differentiated uh, folks. So this is a belief among fifty percent of evangelical Christians that here was the statement: immigrants are invading our country and replacing our cultural and ethnic background. Do we have a problem at the southern border? Absolutely. Is it a crisis? Absolutely. Is the replacement of our cultural and ethnic background threatened? by the arrival of new immigrants. A more recent poll conducted by the Associated Press and NORC, Center for Public Affairs, found that one in three Americans, now a full 30% of American adults, believe in a version of replacement theory. One in three. So what is replacement theory? Why are we talking about it today in light of the events in Buffalo on Sunday? We're going to have that conversation next with Justin Gibney from the AND campaign. You're listening to Mornings with Carmen. We'll be right back. Jim and Simsbury texted in. Yay, Justin's back. Yeah, that's my that's my feeling too. Justin Gibney from the And Campaign is back. You can find him at andcampaign.org. Um, Justin, I'm uh, I'm sorry that we have uh, the headline out of Buffalo, New York, and the reality of um, of racism in America to tee up as our conversation subject for today. But I am glad you're back. Glad to be here, uh, Carmen. Thanks for having me. Let's talk about rip. Uh, the Great Replacement or the Great Replacement Theory, Um, and let's unpack it for people. Um, How do you understand this Great Replacement or Replacement Theory? Well, first, I'm I'm glad that you kind of gave it some context where, you know, we know that uh, white birth rates are down. We know that our borders are porous and that the, uh, the, the U.S. Census Bureau said that projects that the U.S. population will be majority minority between 2040 and 2050. Uh, based on that, you know, we, we, we have that information, but I think where we, what we see here is taking that information and taking a turn for the worst. Uh, basically, the uh, great repra- replacement theory uh, is it's basically saying that blacks and Latinos especially – are being brought to the U.S. pursuant to a cultural and political agenda to replace white people. You hear this a lot coming out of anti-immigration groups and obviously white supremacists. Uh, They're saying that this will lead, uh, some are going so far as to say this will lead to some sort of white extinction or some type of white genocide uh, where the white race is is no more in the United States. And I think at the the root of it, uh, I think it's about a fear of a loss of power and I do think it's about uh, certainly white supremacy. 
So when we talk about as soon as we as soon as we use the phrase white supremacy, um, people's hackles go up. I don't really know why, but there is this like defensive reaction just to hearing the term. Um, So when we're using the term white supremacy, we're talking about a mindset and a worldview. Um, And can you unpack that for us? Yeah, I mean, I'll say I, I don't really like the word either. I think in some uh, spaces it can be overused, but it is what it is, right? It's it's a view that there's some kind of extra value or some um, some superiority superiority when it comes to ontological whiteness. By being white, there's an added value, and if if America becomes less white or it becomes uh, minority majority, then you've lost something. Um, and I just I, I don't think that's at, at all biblical, but I do think it's at the root of what we're seeing in a lot of these spaces. Yeah. Well, and so I think that's very, very helpful. Um, when you turn your attention directly to the the issue of a white teenager um, who seemingly raised by parents who absolutely do not hold the white supremacist views nor this understanding of great replacement out of which he has acted. And you, I mean, by his own self-disclosure, self-radicalized online, um, streaming, live streaming uh, his uh, his massacre of other individuals um, on a social media platform. I mean, this is very, it's it's obviously premeditated. It's obviously um, intentional. It's well planned out. It's well thought out. And yet there are already um, appeals, you know, related to a mental illness defense. Um, and I just I, I, I kind of want to have just a feelings conversation. Like how how does the conversation in the culture, which pivots pretty quickly to gun control or pivots pretty quickly to a conversation about mental illness, both of which are important conversations, but do we move past the pain in the black community too quickly? Yeah, I think sometimes we do. Uh, unfortunately, everything becomes politicized immediately. Um, and so both sides begin to try to use it to their advantage in the coming election or just in the general uh, public discourse without dealing with the issue itself. Uh, there, you know, there may very well be a, a mental illness um, component here. However, you have to take the young man at his words when he says that basically white supremacy was uh, and, and this um, replacement theory was a reason and a motivator for wh- for why he did what he did. We have to sit in that and we have to realize that historically this shouldn't be all that surprising to us. And I think that's unfortunate. But until we deal with it and not and not use these other potential factors to get away from the main cause and the main root of what's going on. And so I, and so I agree with you when we automatically jump to another issue, automatically politicize it or try to wiggle our way out of really dealing with what America's uh, been doing for, for way too long, then we're missing the point and we're not, uh, we're not able to, to find solutions and, and repair. Interesting um, observations you guys are making on the text line about the origin of races Um I think that uh, from a biblical worldview, you know, here's you know, here's the bottom line: we all stand on equal footing at creation, at the cross, and in the kingdom. Spend some time uh, in what the, the Book of Revelation reveals about the kingdom of God, who inhabit it, who inhabits it, who's there, who we're going to spend eternity with, and focus your attention 
there in the kingdom of heaven, um, in the kingdom of God, under the rule and the reign of Jesus Christ, those redeemed in Christ are brothers and sisters, members, one body, one of another, members of the household of faith. Justin and I are brother and sister in Christ. We're going to spend eternity together. My kids and his kids in Jesus, um, not my kids and his kids for any other reason. Um, and so uh, please, please let your worldview on this topic be informed by the scriptures of the Old and New Testaments. Um, spend time understanding the book of Philemon, understanding who, um, who the characters are in that story and who they are in Christ. Um, I just, my my heart, my my heart breaks at some of the things I'm seeing on the text line. I just, I just come right out and say that. All right, Justin and I are going to continue this conversation in just a moment. We're also going to have a conversation about the intersection of a number of um, threads related to the pro-life conversation in the country, being black and female and being a member of Congress. All of that up next from Uh, from one of Justin's conversations on the latest Church Politics podcast, all of which you can find connections to at andcampaign.org. We'll be right back. Continuing our conversation with Justin Gibney from the AND Campaign. You can find him and lots of resources at andcampaign.org. You had a very interesting conversation on the latest episode of the Church Politics Podcast uh, interview with Connecticut Representative, and please forgive me if I uh, mispronounce her name, Trini McGee. Um, talk, talk with us about what you heard, what you learned, what she experiences as a pro-racial justice and pro-life, whole-life black woman in Congress. Yeah. Uh, first and foremost, um, Connecticut State Representative uh, Trene McGee is Trine, a star. Thank you. Yeah, she, she's biblical. I think she, she's in her 20s. She's biblical. I think she's the youngest woman in the Connecticut State House. Uh, and she's pro-life uh, and she stands on it. Uh, you know, too often we we get folks who are in office and are in the political class who are just kind of blowing with the wind. If you talk to this sister, you don't get that at all. She knows who he, she is. She knows what she believes in. And I would suggest that everybody listening right now looks her up. She is legit. But one of the things that we talked about in our latest in my um, latest episode of Church Politics was how. You know, black people are often spoken about in this abortion conversation. We know that the numbers are, are way too high in that community, in our community, and, and I get that. But we're being spoken about, but not really spoken to. Um, and so you have kind of within the culture war, you have white progressives and white conservatives who speak for us and our best interest. The AND campaign thinks it's important and created our whole life project to have black women especially speak for themselves, uh, to say how they feel about the issue. And so we've brought together a very strong group of pro-life black women, some Democrats, some Republicans, but all of them speaking on the issue from a whole life perspective and letting people know what they have to say and not taking the talking points from one side or the other. Uh, and I think it just, they have so much to give and add to this conversation. Trine McGee is one of the leaders of that group. And, and again, you all have to look her up and, and listen to that, that interview because it is really strong and th- that's the type of leader that we need, someone who's willing to 
to have her own party go up against her and try to stop her even before she got in office, overcoming that and getting in office and representing who she is in Christ. So that's a little bit of your own story. Like this resonates um, with you as well, Justin, for people who um, who don't know your backstory you know, there's some uh, there's some alignment here in your experience in Georgia and Trinae's experience in Connecticut. Can you share that part of your story with us? Sure. Um, you know, one one thing I can point to is when I ran for the Democratic National Convention in 2016, I actually ran on a platform that was pro-life. And so when I gave my my two minute or three minute speech, I talked about being pro-life. I talked about how Christians deserve a especially uh, folks from the uh, black church deserve a seat at the table and that we shouldn't just be used for votes, but we should actually be listened to. Uh, and I actually ended up winning. So this was in John Lewis's uh, district at the time, the fifth congressional district in Georgia. And with that message talking about, you know, how we feel and the, the historic Christian sexual ethic and all those things, I actually won in that district because that's what people wanted to hear and, and agreed with. And I got backlash. Uh, I was, you know, they tried to remove me from uh, the delegation and all these other things, but ended up failing. Uh, and, and it was just a, a, a good opportunity to show that there are a lot of pro-life people in the Democratic Party, in uh, the black community. Um, we may just talk about it differently, and it may not be the number one priority, but it is something that uh, we care about. So we hear, um, we hear talking points related to um, African-American support for abortion access. This is a complicated topic in um, in the culture today. It's complicated in the church. It's complicated um, racially. Um, a disproportionate number of abortions in this country uh, are the abortion of black and brown babies. Can you just talk about this subject with us as we, you know, as we roam around in uh, the national debate about abortion? Yeah, I think it's an issue with a number of factors that play into it. And I think one of the things that the historically portions of the pro-life effort have missed are the things, economic issues, social issues that play into women being in a crisis situation. Uh, And so we can take the position, you, you shouldn't be pregnant anyway, just deal with it. Or we can say, what factors are there that can be removed to make you think that abortion isn't the best option for you. And I think, and I hear, I hear people in the pro-life movement making that term, but until we can be a little more compassionate and think about other factors such as childcare, healthcare, many of the states that are hardest on abortion have the worst healthcare systems when it comes to maternal mortality. And so you have black women dying at a much higher rate when they're pregnant than other women, especially white women. And so we don't deal with those issues, but we just want to focus on that that one side of it. I think that's not the best way to go about it. When we talk about whole a whole life approach, we want to look at other factors and make sure that we're putting women in the best position, whether we agree with how they got there or not, that we're doing so, everything we can to help. So internationally, Justin, there's this uh, first thousand days initiative and effort where, um, I mean, globally, we focus on maternal and um, and infant health for the first thousand days. And that first thousand days includes um, the pregnancy, the period of pregnancy, and then up to like the the child's second birthday. So that's the first thousand days. I'm wondering if, you know, we need a U.S. 
conversation that's similar to the conversation that we're having, that we have globally. I mean, we have that conversation globally. We support maternal health, women and their children for the first thousand days. Like that is our national pro-life global advocacy. But we don't have that same kind of commitment to pregnant women and infants and then young children here in the United States of America. We're 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 incredibly focused on concerns related to the aged, um, you know, the older folks. But we're we seem not overly concerned with the welfare of uh, pregnant women and then very small children. I mean, maybe that's a shift that needs to take place. Oh, it's definitely a shift that needs to take place. And, and here's the thing. We don't necessarily have to agree on exactly what the policy looks like. But by having the conversation and doing the hard work of democracy, we reach those solutions. So you can disagree with me on exactly what that policy will look like. But to, but not to have the conversation to say we're pro-life and not to dig, dig deeper into why women are in these situations, even looking at why they say they're in the situation, why they may choose to have an abortion just doesn't make sense. And so unless we can kind of pull ourselves out of our ideological uh, 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 holes, right, unless we can start to see politics and start to see issues outside of of, of ideology, it's going to be hard to really have that conversation. But I am it is good to, to know that there are a lot of Christians that are having that conversation. Uh, we, we work with the Center for Public Justice, uh, uh, you know, Stephanie Summers, all those folks to really try to try to start coming up with solutions. Who cares about party? This is about life. This is about human dignity. And we need to start thinking about it a little bit differently. That's so helpful. All right, Justin, as always, we love having you. That's Justin Gibney. You can find him at and, A-N-D, and campaign.org. You're listening to Mornings with Carmen. We'll be right back. And now for something entirely different. Because it's Tuesday and I like to, you know, taste and see on Tuesday. Help everybody taste and see that the Lord is good. And because every once in a while I like to say things like, hey, good looking, what you got cooking? And because I like to cook and I like to feed my people. Um, This is going to be really fun. Kendra Adachi is joining us. She is... Uh, the host of The Lazy Genius Kitchen. She is also the author of a book by the same name, The Lazy Genius Kitchen, and she joins us next. You're in for a real treat. I I am, I confess, a lazy genius. And so I love uh, this entire approach to life. Kendra Adachi is the lazy genius. She's here to help us uh, be genius about the things that matter and lazy about the things that don't matter. Kendra, welcome to Mornings with Carmen. Thanks for having me, Carmen. I'm happy to be here. All right. So your latest book is The Lazy Genius Kitchen. And I want to get into that and dig around in that. I am loving, loving, loving um, the the videos related to The Lazy Genius Kitchen because I think they're they're so fun and delightful. Um, You have a podcast, though, in which you talk about all kinds of things, Lazy Genius. And so let me encourage folks to check out the website, thelazygeniuscollective.com, where you can 
you can just connect to everything that we're talking about today, um, but also all the other great resources that Kendra has posted. Let's um, let's start here if we can, because you offer five steps to lazy genius everything. So before we get into the lazy genius kitchen specifically, um, can you help us get into sort of lazy genius everything? <laughs> right. So the whole reason that I wanted to become the lazy genius and sort of start this a few years ago was because I noticed how many people, especially women, but not exclusively, but especially women were so tired. Uh, Mm. We're all just so tired. And I think so much of that is because we're trying really hard at the wrong things, at too many things, at a lot of things that might not actually matter to us as much as they need to. We cannot all care about literally everything. It's an impossible, it is an impossible task. And so what I want to do is offer permission to people to say, there are certain things in your life that you deeply, deeply care about. So let's focus on those. Let's become a genius about those. And then there are other things that you might not care as much about. And it is okay to put some lazy energy in that direction so that you can live a more fulfilled life. So the first step of those five steps that you mentioned is to prioritize and it is to name what matters. If we don't name what matters about even just the small situation that we're in, we are not going to know how to move forward. We're not going to know what to do next because we are trying to satisfy multiple needs from multiple voices and multiple sources that leave us uh, a bit anemic in our efforts and what we're doing. So that is definitely the place to start is to name what matters. All right. So naming what matters is going to, we're going to apply that in the kitchen in just a moment. Right. Um, but after we have named what matters and we have prioritized, you, the yes. second step is essentialize. That's right. I, I thought that the application of this to my utensil drawer was genius, but <laughs> talk about it, talk about it, which by the way, I, I opened that yesterday and I thought, okay, if she showed up at my house, I, I, this is where we'd spend all of our time because you'd have, <laughs> you would have a million questions anyway. No. Okay. Essentialize. The, it's I love it's funny one. how the uh, the uh, utensil drawer, I feel like it's just a window into many of our souls. You know, we're oh, like, what's gosh, in there? Abs- what's happening absolutely. in there? <laughs> what, and what is that thing? What is that thing? And who thought they needed it? And, it's and true. when was the last time you used it? Yeah, I've we been married for have... 11 years. Yeah, I've been married for 11 years. There are things in the utensil drawer uh, I did not buy. I don't know mm-hmm. what they are. And they predate me. Like, it's time <laughs> for them to go. I'm the only person who cooks. Right. We all have something in our drawer that we're like, what is this? Why is this here? <laughs> Where did this come from? So the the idea of essentialize is to, after you name what matters, you need to get rid of what is in the way of what matters. So for example, if what matters to you about how you interact with the utensils in your kitchen. And that's a thing. Like we need to name that because we all might have different priorities for that. You might want your utensils to be out and beautiful, that it is an aesthetic choice in your kitchen. You might want it to be, um, the priority could be that it's accessible, that you can just get to what you need as quickly as possible. The things don't have to be like super high quality or um, organized in a, in a very clear way. You just want to be able to get to them as quickly as possible. So you can see like just even those two things, your choices of how you, how you organize and what you have 
is going to divert depending on what your priority is. So if your priority is like, I just want things to be really accessible, then you need to get rid of having too much in the drawer that is closest to your stove, right? You can keep mm -hmm. the stuff. If you want to keep those utensils, if they all matter to you, if they all have some value of some sort, you can keep them, but they need to go, some of them need to go to a different place because the amount of utensils is getting in the way of the accessibility that you're actually after. And then that leads us to step three, which is to organize, is to put everything in its place. If you organize before you essentialize, if you try to put things in their place before you get rid of what is in the way, this is why we just keep like, organizing a closet and we're like, cool. And then six months later, we're like, what happened? Why is it, mm -hmm. why is it back to this terrible, this terrible place now? So uh, that is step three is to put everything in its place based on what matters and you have removed what is in the way. All right. And then you have personalize. Yes. I love personalize because I feel like we are not uh, given that permission very often in our lives, especially in the kitchen, because there are so many expectations about what a kitchen should look like, how it should function, how we should exist in it, the kinds of foods we should cook if we cook at all. There are so many expectations. And so it is deeply, deeply important that we feel like ourselves in the kitchen, that mm -hmm. we add a sense of personalization to that kitchen, whether it is like having a favorite color on a tea towel or to say, you know what? I don't really like cooking. And I know that I want to feed myself. I want to feed my family, depending on what your family unit is. Like, I know that I need to actually feed myself and my people, but because being at the stove and cooking does not fit my skill set, And I would rather be around the table with those people having a conversation than at the stove. Guess what you can do to personalize the way that you exist in your kitchen? You can have more convenience foods that you can just put in the oven. You know, you can have appliances that are um, a little bit more set it and forget it so that you can focus on being at the table instead of being at the stove. And that's okay. It is okay for us to choose different ways to exist and nourish our people in the kitchen. But if we don't pay attention to what makes us feel like ourselves in those moments, listening to music, wearing an apron or not, doing it alone, doing it with other people, you know, there's so many different things to pay attention to. Um, and that I think is why we can feel frustrated in the kitchen is because we just don't feel like ourselves. So much fun. Kendra Adachi is the author of The Lazy Genius Kitchen. She's also the host of the podcast, The Lazy Genius. You can find her at thelazygeniuscollective.com. And yes, for those of you hoping that I have books to give away, I do. You text the word book to 877-933-2484 to enter the drawing. We are going to apply the five steps of lazy genius anything directly to our experience in the kitchen on this Taste and See Tuesday as we taste and see that the Lord is good. You're listening to Mornings with Carmen. We'll be right back. Hey, hey good looking. What you got cooking? How's about cooking something up? All right, me? we're talking with Kendra Adachi. The book is The Lazy Genius Kitchen on this Taste and See Tuesday. And yes, we've got copies to give away. You can enter the drawing by texting the word book to 877-933-2484. 
the Lazy Genius podcast, I would highly recommend. Um, there's a video series right now related to this. You can find uh, connections to all of it at thelazygeniuscollective.com. Um, all right. So uh, take us into the application of um, prioritize, essentialize, organize, personalize, systemize. Take uh, take us uh, into into the kitchen and apply it there. Walk into my kitchen and help me. What is your biggest pain point in your kitchen right now, Carmen? Let's do this in real time. What do you not enjoy about your kitchen right now? It can be the smallest. Actually, the smaller the problem, the easier it is to find a solution. I have too much stuff on my counters. Okay, perfect. Okay, so then what matters? Let's prioritize step one. What matters to you about how your counters function? Is it that there's just too much stuff that you want them to be clear all the time or that you want them to be clear before you cook a meal? Like what matters about those counters? Uh, I need enough space to cook because I love to cook and I like the prep related to it and I like to have everything out and I like to do all the parts and I don't like to have to continue continually like move things around in order to do this part of the meal. Absolutely. Okay. So step two is it might be efficiency. It might be, it might be that I'm an efficiency junkie and I don't yeah. like having to move something more than once. That makes a lot of sense to me. So if step two is essentialized and we're getting rid of what's in the way there, it sounds like there are some things on your counter that are living there permanently. Mm-hmm. Could they, could they step three be organized and put in a different place? Can you imagine mm-hmm. your counters in your head right now? Like, what could you move to a different place? Oh, yeah, that's a long list. Okay. Yeah, <laughs> I, can, I, can, I can see that. I can, so, uh, yes, okay. Mm-hmm. Here's, here's what we do is we, we live in our kitchens every day, multiple times a day. Like, there are so many things happening. There are so many meals. And depending on the number of people who live in your home, like you multiply the number of meals by the number of mouths you're feeding. I mean, it's a lot of energy in that one room, right? And what we often do is because we're in there so often, we don't have the space or the margin or the energy to look at something and go, do I need to keep doing that? Like I I had someone um, reach out to me recently And she said, we had a whole shelf in our fridge of hot sauces and no one in our family (laughs) likes hot sauce. No one in our family eats hot sauce. But like, we don't, we, you don't think about getting rid of it because you feel bad. Like, well, I guess every, I mean, everybody needs hot sauce, right? Not if that is not, uh, not if that doesn't matter to you. If the person, if you're personalizing your, your meals with other things and not hot sauce, you don't have to keep hot sauce. And it was, she said, it's the simplest thing. Like we just threw away all our hot sauce and now my fridge can breathe again. Why did I never think to do this before? And I think that's what happens to us in our kitchens. We just get so overwhelmed by the, the daily-ness of it. And we don't see things from like a broader perspective. Like you could go home right now and go, oh yeah, I just have too much stuff on my counter. I need to move the mail over here. I need to keep the water bottles over here. I, you know, whatever it is. Like, But we don't think about it until we're given a lens to look through to see it for what it is. It's so fun. I feel like you could just travel the country and knock on our doors and help us. Uh, <laughs> Kendra Adachi is the author of The, La- the Lazy Genius Kitchen. 
Um, and, you know, I'm featuring it because this is Taste and See Tuesday, and I want you to taste and see that the Lord is good, and I want you to help other people taste and see that the Lord is good. Yes, we are giving away copies of the book today. You can text the word book to 877-933-2484. You also need to check out the Lazy Genius podcast and all the resources available at thelazygeniuscollective.com. So um, you were a little surprised uh, uh, recently that somebody had um, burrata. Is this the this is this fancy <laughs> cheese? Right. Like, yes, right? that's okay. right. So here, so we have stuff in our fridges that we clearly bought bought on some kind of impulse at some point in time. We don't necessarily know how to use it. We think we're fancy because we own it. Like, mm-hmm. can you just give us permission to clean out our fridge? Oh, 100%. There's a whole section in the book on the food that you have in your kitchen. And we apply the five steps to the food, to the shopping and the storage of the food in your kitchen, because we all have it. My, that thing, my burrata is uh, (laughs) roasted red peppers. I, every single kitchen book, every single cookbook I have ever read when it has like a standard pantry list, like these are the essential (laughs) ingredients you should have in your pantry. Always. They always list roasted red peppers. And I'm like, well, okay. Do you know how many jars of moldy roasted red peppers I've thrown away? Because I don't like roasted red peppers. I don't oh, like them. You don't so like I them. don't, I don't even uh, like them, but I mm. was buying them and I'm a good cook. Like, and mm-hmm. I, you know, I, I have created these things and I was like, why do I still, why am I still buying roasted red peppers? <sighs> and it's because I needed to have the permission to say, no, you need to buy what you use. Here's the thing about your tools, about, um, the ingredients you have in your, in your refrigerator, in your pantry, it is not essential unless you use it. If you do not use it, you don't need to have it. So what other people say, what other people swear by, what professional cooks and cookbook authors list out, it is essential for them. And of course, they are wanting to equip you with what has worked for them. But what works for everybody does not necessarily work for you. So we need to have that lens of saying, oh, wait, I'm not going to use that. I'm not going to use it. So I'm just, I'm not going to get it. Even though everybody else loves this thing, it's okay for me to pass it by and go get the thing that I am actually going to use. So I think this was like about a year ago. I was sharing a story here. Um, My husband loves to bake pies. Like He's the pie baker. Uh, He's the grill master and the pie baker. And I do everything else. I mean, kitchen wise and food wise, but he is the pie maker and he's really good at it. Um, and he likes to take pies places. And so there was a conversation on air one day about the transporting of pies. And I didn't even know there was such a thing as a pie basket, but I have lots of listeners who were aware of this. People had them, you know, in their basements and in their attics and in their garages. And anyway, it became an essential in our family. And now we have pie baskets and we use them like regularly. Yeah. And so other people who, you know, had pie baskets uh, and never used them generously shared them with me. And so I now have three and I'm like the, I'm so excited and I use them all the time. Um, But this is an example of an essential that you might have. It might be essential to somebody else. It's not an essential to you if you don't make pies, but if you do make pies, it's a really good thing to have. That is such an excellent example because we all have different things that we focus on. I'm also a baker, so I have two stand mixers and I'm going to organize my kitchen so that I have plenty of room for all of my my stand mixers and all my mixing bowls. And I'll be like, I have so many, I have a wooden spoon collection because wooden spoons make me happy. Like I love to look (laughs) at them. They're out. 
but I am not going to say to you, yeah, you should have a wooden spoon collection and you should put it out on your counter because guess what? You might not care about wooden spoons. You don't need to look at them. Like it doesn't matter to you and that is okay. So that is the whole point of the book is to give, to give us a path of how to figure out what we need figure out how to use what we do have. And if you do those two things, you're going to enjoy your kitchen. If you have what you need and you know how to use what you have and you're personalizing, you're, you're feeling like yourself in your kitchen, you're going to enjoy being there. That's so much fun. I totally love it. I love the spirit of it. I love the content. You, you've offered such great help. The Lazy Genius Kitchen is the book. Kendra Adachi is the author. She's also the host of the podcast, um, and they've got a great video series up right now. You can check it all out at thelazygeniuscollective.com. And, yep, we're giving away books today. You can text the word book to 877-933-2484. Kendra, thank you so much. What a delight. Thanks for having me, Carmen. I appreciate it. So much fun. You're listening to Mornings with Carmen. We'll be right back. For those of you who, yep, you caught the basket theme there. You remember the conversation that we had uh, yesterday about, or earlier this week. Well, that yeah, it had been yesterday. Yesterday was earlier this week. There's only one, been one day earlier this week in our conversation. So earlier this week, when we talked about basketball, and then we talked about all the baskets in the Bible and being a basket case and all of that. Yep, mm-hmm, pie baskets, that'd be on my list, absolutely and for sure. So, um, you know, think about those common things, those ordinary things in your life. Uh, Think about how you can bring a a scriptural um, note to that conversation when you hear references in the culture to um, to things like the Good Samaritan, like, right, you know, help people make that connection. Where did that come from? Or sowing and reaping or, you know, anything like that, like use what you know about what scripture says and help other people um, see it in their own lives as well. All right. uh, What you got cooking today? Hmm. I know. I, I love to cook. I think you already know this about me. Um, I got to come up with some new kale recipes because all of a sudden, I, I noticed this morning, our kale crop is enormous. Um, so there you go. And for those of you who have been wondering, yes, the uh, mice eradication project is ongoing. We are currently like eight for eight. <clears throat> yeah, we clearly have a problem. Um, and Millie's getting better. For those of you concerned about my dog, she is on the mend. The antibiotics appear to be working. Ticks are still gross. There you go. That's the quick farm report. And it's only Tuesday. All right. Thanks for joining me, taking me with with you where you're going today. Have a great day. God bless. Thanks for listening to this podcast of Mornings with Carmen LeBurge from Faith Radio. If you haven't, you can subscribe to automatically receive the podcast through iTunes or the Google Play Music app. That way you never miss an episode. It's also available anytime at MyFaithRadio.com.